seated. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We had a failure in our sound system mechanics in the early service, and they didn't have these uh, speakers to benefit from. So, if you see somebody from the early service sitting around, I told them, come back to the second service when we got it all figured out, if you didn't hear. And, you know, if you're struggling with a little extra bitterness, it might be good to hear it a second time. So, that could be the case with somebody sitting nearby. I don't know. Romans chapter 12. You know, I started this sermon series on Christ-commissioned unity. We went to the foundation of that unity in what Jesus says, and what Jesus prays for is that we may be one as He and the Father are one from John 17. As we looked at John 17, Christ-commissioned unity is first Christ-centered, it's truth-grounded, and it's gospel-proclaiming. A watching world is seeing us, and if we are unified as believers in Christ, that proclaims the gospel. We then went to James 3 and 4 to look at what those threats to unity were. And there we saw that the wisdom from above is contrasted with that wisdom which is from below. And we saw that at the fundamental issue is that there is a, a heart problem. Uh, we have a worship disorder that we have desires that we want things and we make them ultimate things. These desires become demands and we won't stop till we get them and therefore we will fight and quarrel and bicker, and therefore unity is threatened. But we looked at how to reorient our worship disorder, reorient towards Christ and pleasing Him, and that helps us conquer that threat. Today, I want us to see what happens when we don't deal with this threat to unity and we allow bitterness to come. That bitterness that is described in the book of Hebrews as a root of bitterness. I want us to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21, as a, as a key starting passage for us this morning. Follow along as I read Romans 12, 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your magnificent word. We thank you that it is a light unto our path. Lord, that you direct our steps by your holy word. And Lord, as we have come before this passage today, we confess that these are hard words for us. It's a challenge. It, it's, it's difficult. And yet, Lord, we know that You give strength to the weak. You give us hope. Lord, You have given us Your own Holy Spirit, both to help us understand what You teach us, illuminating Your Word, but also to give us power, strength to do what You command us to do. Lord, we thank You for Your marvelous 
grace to us in Christ Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. If you heard any of the litany of commands and prohibitions in those seven short verses and you thought to yourself, there's no way I can do those things that Paul is saying here, I may as well stay bitter. It's hopeless. I can't do it. I'd say you're totally wrong. The fact is, if you think that you can maybe squeeze out a little bit of uh, one or two of these things, you're not going to be able to do it in your own strength. We really need the grace of God to be able to do all that He commands us to do. And if you don't take Romans 12, 14 to 21 in this context, you're just left with a bunch of do's and don'ts. Act this way, don't act this way. And in its context, however, this is a beautiful, beautiful instruction for us. The context of Romans 12, 14 to 17, or 21 brings us back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Listen to what it says. This is critical. It points us back to the previous 11 chapters of all that God has been doing in salvation, working salvation for us by His grace, not because of our works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He does the work. And then in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is what Paul is leading into. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the commands and prohibitions I have, but I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore is looking back at all that he had accomplished in saving us by his grace. Because you are brothers, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You're believers in Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are empowered to live the life that God calls you to live. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In light of the mercies of God, keeping the mercies of God central to your focus, here's how you are to live, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's for you, God. It's a sacrifice to you, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is His good and acceptable and perfect will. Verses 14 to 21 give us excellent insight in how to battle against bitterness in our lives. But you will totally miss the boat if you think, I can pick one or two of these to work on. I could try harder in this and try harder in that. If you don't see your complete dependence on God's mercy, you're not going to be able to do what He's called you to do. I want us to consider how bitterness is born in our lives, how bitterness is born, how bitterness grows, and then how bitterness dies. It's the life cycle of bitterness. And I think universally, as fallen people living in a fallen world, we're susceptible to bitterness. And here's how it begins. It begins with a hurt. It begins with a hurt or offense. And in fact, for me, it doesn't even have to be a real hurt or offense. It could be a, just a perceived hurt or offense. Ouch. They said something. They did something. Or they didn't say something when they should have. And they didn't do what I expected them to do. And in my heart, I'm thinking, I'm hurt. Now, that's where the fork in the road comes, and we have two choices. We can either handle that hurt in a way that would honor God, or we can handle that hurt and get, grow more bitter. Growing more bitter is natural. 
you don't have to do anything to work at becoming more bitter. Sure, there's things you can do to, to make it worse, but it's the natural progression for hurts that aren't addressed. So I want us to consider, first of all, the way that we should handle hurts so that we don't become bitter. And the Bible gives us some options. Forgiveness is key. When hurts and offenses come into our lives, we got to be willing, ready, and able to forgive. And one way that forgiveness shows up in our lives is we can cover over a transgression or we can overlook an offense in love. Two passages come to mind. In Proverbs 19.11, it says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Here comes that hurt. And you decide, I'm going to overlook that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Or in 1 Peter 4.8, we're told, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You can cover over that sin in love. It's the practice of forbearance, of not being and holding on to that hurt. You're going to give it up to the Lord. Now, that, that's one option, and, and we should be able to practice that option for offenses that are on probably the more minor scale. But there's four questions I'd want you to ask to decide whether you need to actually take it to the step of talking to somebody who's offended you. And it's important that we, we can't just put everything in the, the bucket of cover it over and, um, and pass over it. There are some offenses that, first of all, may be just seriously dishonoring to God. And so they need to be talked about. They need to be addressed. The next question is, has it permanently damaged a relationship? If this rela- relationship is permanently damaged, we've got to talk about it. We've got to work this out. Is it seriously hurting other people or is it ser- seriously hurting the, the, the offender themselves? Then we need to talk about it. So covering over or look, uh, using, uh, overlooking an offense is a legitimate way to, to get rid of the bitterness in your life. But don't let serious sin that needs to be talked about just keep going on and going on. Well, how do we deal with that sin that needs to be confronted, that needs to be talked about? Matthew 18 gives us the process. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I think that's a key that we deal with personal sins in a private manner and not just broadcast it or not get other people's advice, put it on a prayer chain somehow and and let everybody know about, I've been sinned against. That's not the proper procedure of Matthew 18, between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. And that could settle it in the, in, the, in the quickest possible way. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I like to pick somebody that that other person who's offended me or sinned against me would trust, somebody that they listen to, somebody that they value their opinion, and go with them to try and win over your brother. And if he listens, then you've won your brother. But if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Wow, that's serious stuff. But you know, 90% of this procedure of Matthew 18 is handled in the first step. Just going and having the courage to talk to your brother and sister. But the important thing to keep in mind is what Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says ought to be our attitude. 
Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The attitude is not, I caught you now, now I'm going to give you a talking to. It's, wow, they're trapped in that sin. They've been overtaken by that, and I need to help them. And I'm going to go to them, and my purpose of telling them about their sin is not just so I can get it off my chest, not so that I can let them have it, but I want to restore them. I want to see them to really take ownership of their sin and the way that they've hurt me so that they would be first right with God and then right with me. I mean, that's part of our liturgy every week is that we talk about this vertical being right with God, being forgiven, allows us to be at peace with one another. Is that your priority in going to seek out somebody who needs to hear about their sin, about their offense? And then do it in a spirit of gentleness. Oh, so key, that if we come with a gentle and humble spirit, you'll be much more likely to be received. And then, of course, keeping watch on yourself because during these times, we are very often blind to our own sin. We need to keep watch. So this ought to be fulfilling what God commands in Colossians 3.13, that we are to bear with one another if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, even as God, as the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also forgive. It's really not an option for us to just hold on to bitterness. We are told we must forgive because we've been forgiven. In Ephesians 4.31 and 32, we're told to let all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all slander be put away from us, along with all malice. Well, when you put away that bitterness and anger, what do you put on in its place? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. God's forgiven you. You can forgive others. You don't have to hold on to that bitterness. The parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18 is, is just a stark reminder to us. Remember that servant who owed 10,000 talents to his master, a, a debt he could never repay, begs for mercy, and that master completely forgives his debt. And then as soon as he leaves from his master, he goes to another fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, a much, much, much smaller amount. And he grabs hold of him, give me what you owe me. He is so unforgiving to another fellow servant, even after he's been forgiven much. So when his master finds out, he summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It's that vertical forgiveness, that vertical dimension that we so quickly lose sight of. We are always so comparing, well, you did this to me, and I only did this to you, and yours is worse than mine, and so we have this tit-for-tat kind of mentality, and that just keeps us stuck in bitterness. In order to get out of bitterness, we need to come to the point where we have a new perspective on how much God has forgiven us in Christ. The vertical dimension of forgiveness is the only standard by which we can practice this horizontal forgiveness. So I must never base the way that I treat you on the way that you treat me, but on the way that God's treated me. 
My sin against God is always bigger than your sin against me. He's infinite in his love. He's infinite in his righteousness. And my sin against an infinite God is infinite. Your sin against me, a finite person, it's finite. God's forgiven you so much. Can you forgive another? Every sin that we commit starts out and is first and foremost a sin against God. You remember David when he said in Isaiah 50, or in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight? Well, he had killed Uriah. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. But he sees the greatest offense as to what he's done against his heavenly father. That's the perspective that we need to see. I must see others in the light of the cross like God sees me as righteous and beloved in Christ. He sees me as a forgiven child. I ought to see my brother and sister in Christ the same way. So I was racking my brain a little bit this week as to how to, how to picture this for you so you understand this vertical dimension and the horizontal uh, dimension. And uh, I thought of a picture in nine, oh, how many years ago was it? When I was 16 years old, our family took a trip out west to Yellowstone National Park. And if you've been there before, there's a certain uh, falls, it's called Tower Falls, that just cascades down from a, a tall height. I grew up near Niagara Falls, so, you know, I've seen big waterfalls, wide, expansive. But this Tower Falls was something that was magnificent because of the height at which it dropped down. And as you see this uh, this waterfall coming down in the middle of the forest is a beautiful picture spot. And I remember taking a picture. I think my mom had it developed, put it on the wall. One of the things I remember about that location is that the best perspective, the best angle to get a picture was not to do a landscape, but it was rather to do a, a portrait shot. Turn your camera on the vertical and get a shot so you can see how tall this thing really is, how magnificent it is. And better yet, if you could get down low at the base and really look and be brought low, you would have the perfect perspective to see the power, to see the force, to see how amazing this waterfall is. Forgiveness is best viewed from a humble heart, down low. And on the vertical, where we magnify God's grace and God's mercy to us, rather than think about our mercy and grace in forgiving others. This forgiveness that we're called to give because God has forgiven us has to start inside. For some of us, that means that there has to be this internal forgiveness that begins, well, in my heart. In Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus talks about when you stand praying, when when you're in worship and you're standing and praying, he says this, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So there are occasions when we're in worship and we may be thinking, ah, that, that person hurt me. That person has wronged me. You can forgive them in your heart and go on with worship. Jesus also describes, though, in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you're the offender in this case, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What an important thing that there's times where we have to, we're called to forgive without going to that offender. But there are times when we're the offender, drop what you're doing and go and talk to them. Confess your sin to them. Ask for their forgiveness so that you could be clear to, to worship fully. That external transacted forgiveness, that conversation you got to have is going to defeat bitterness. And it begins with, in your heart, forgiving. This forgiveness is not a feeling first. It's foundationally a promise that you're making. You know, as God forgives us, so we are to forgive. He's the model. He's the pattern. So when he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I moved, removed your transgressions from you, what does that mean when you think about your brother or sister sin against you? Put it away. Put it far. I have cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. God says, I will remember your sins no more. It's a promise of God. God's not a forgetful God. He doesn't have lapses in memory. He can't forget. We can't forgive and forget. We're called to forgive and choose not to remember. I will remember your sins no more means I'm going to be like God. I got to promise not to bring it up to him again, what you did. I can't bring it up to myself and dwell on it and mull it over. I can't bring it up to you again, and I can't bring it up to other people to use against you. Those are four promises that we make when we forgive. And this is what solves the bitterness that just builds up in our relationships. It builds up in our homes, in our marriages, amongst our kids, with our church family, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we forgive, making these promises, we bury it. We put it away. And that just, that seed of bitterness that wants so desperately to grow doesn't get a chance to take root. It doesn't get a chance to put those deep roots in because we act in a forgiving manner. And that may mean covering over that transgression in love or it may be talking to that person, but forgiveness has got to be in place. With that said, that's, that's how it starts. How does bitterness grow? When you look at our passage here, beginning at verse 14, all the way through 21, I've kind of pulled together five things that makes bitterness grow. Five things that are like the fertilizer for bitterness in our lives. When you are persecuted, that's kind of how it starts in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So verse 14 gives us the first thing. If you are persecuted, if you are hurt, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to curse them? This cursing may be to their face. You may just let them have it. You may give them a piece of your mind. But this cursing could also happen just as easily behind their backs uh, to another person, to your prayer partner. That's not the best way to handle a hurt is just to go talk to other people about it. Talk to God about it. Don't talk in a cursing manner about other people. Gossip or slander. Next we see in verse 16 that we are to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This being haughty and wise in your own sight, this is pride. And that certainly is going to feed your bitterness. Um, They need to come to me. They know exactly what they did. When they get their life in order and they are ready to come to me, then we'll talk about it. And we're just going to sit and stew 
until they figure it out. That's pride. Humility is the opposite of that, and we'll put that on in a second. The third thing that just grows bitterness like crazy is this mentality of repaying evil for evil. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What is that attitude of repaying evil for evil? It's vengeance. It's getting back. It's saying, I'm going to keep a record of wrongs. If there was an evil, I'm going to send an evil back. Oh, that was a big evil. I'm sending a big evil back. It's keeping record of when I've been wrong and being ready to put it right back. I will show them. I will teach them a lesson. Now, who are we to think that we can teach somebody else a lesson? That's where God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We need to turn it over to God for him to have the repayment. I think this vengeance attitude is as simple as simply seen as when you're driving down 435 and you are in the second to right lane and you're about to make your exit maneuver to get on 69 and you know the traffic is getting heavier and in your right lane in the rear view mirror you see speeding up past the speed I mean you're already going five miles an hour over the speed limit they're going 10 and they're going to pass you on the right that's an offense right there I, I'm personally offended when somebody wants to break the rules and pass on the right so what do I do bump up the cruise control just a couple couple just so subtly Th this is revenge dunk, dunk. and that makes me go fast enough that that other car that they're trying to zoom behind and cut in front of me is going to be it blocking them out right and then they'll have to slow down right and then they'll be like frustrated they am i wicked or what that i would think that detailed but nobody else in the car would even have to know the vengeance attitude in my heart that i'm repaying evil for evil i'm going to sh show them a lesson oh it's so subtle that's why we got to be on alert for it that's why we got to guard against it so that we don't slip into that it just is so natural the third the fourth thing is that we shouldn't avenge ourselves in verse 19 we're told Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Sometimes we think it's payback time. And we take, it takes all different forms of payback. It doesn't have to be just one for one. You do the thing back to the person that they exactly did to you. No, you, you can be more creative than that, right? You use sarcasm to get back at them. You do uh, the silent treatment to get back to them. Maybe you're avenging yourself with the cold shoulder or any number of passive-aggressive ways in which you, you, you can kind of deny that you actually were avenging yourself, but you really were. We're subtle about these things. Finally, the fifth way that we grow up bitterness is when, verse 21, we're overcome by evil. We're commanded in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but when we just give in, I'm just overcome I'm just going to let it go. I'm just, I'm just going to let that bitterness be allowed to fester and grow. We give up. We give in. We lose hope. We stew over it. We pout. We grow in a critical spirit. We get depressed. All these are indications that, that bitterness is just than what you've given yourself over to. Be, do not be overcome by evil. Hebrews 12, again, I verse I made reference to it, that root of bitterness is talked about 
He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. If you believe that your bitterness is all just contained, if it's all just you, and it's not affecting the people around you, you are deceived. Don't be deceived. Your bitterness is affecting your brother or your sister. Young people, your bitterness is affecting your classmates, your teammates on your, on your sports team. Families, moms, dads, fathers, mothers, you guys are, the bitterness starts to seep into the rest of your relationships in the workplace, our church. One author says, bitterness reflects a smoldering resentment, a brooding grudge-filled attitude, an unwillingness to forgive or a harsh feeling. Bitterness is the opposite of sweetness and kindness. It harbors resentment and keeps a score of wrongs. Before I leave how it grows, let me also say that it doesn't just happen in our relationships with one another. Sometimes we can grow embittered to God, which is the worst because God is kind and gracious and loving. And difficult things happen to us. And we say, why me, God? Or why is this happening? But we can never take God's actions and bring them into the courtroom of our own judgment and say, that is not good. Because God is good. And God is righteous. And he uses those hard things, those difficult providences in our lives to work some glory in his life. But, you know, if there was anybody in the Bible that could have been bitter, it would have been Joseph. Remember? Sold by his brothers spent time in prison, just rejected in so many ways. And when he got a chance, his brothers come back. He had every opportunity to take revenge on them. He says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. Wow, what a perspective on his circumstances. He didn't grow embittered to God. He grew greater in love with God's plan and purpose because of that hard providence. I want us to look at how bitterness dies, or better yet, how do you kill bitterness? It won't just passively die on its own. You got to be battling. You got to be fighting. And so I could not imagine any uh, soldier going off to Iraq or Afghanistan without his body armor on, without his weapon. I don't want you to imagine going into life and relationships without knowing how to battle against bitterness because it's all around us. It's such an enemy. So from our passage, when we do these eight things, bitterness is going to be killed off. It dies. So when we're persecuted, verse 14 says, we're to bless. Twice we're told in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This word means uh, to speak a good word. It's just a compound word that means good word. And it's not just when you're with that person, you put on this fake smile and say, oh, I'm happy with you. You're a nice person. No, it, it, it's being genuine. But it also involves how you talk about that person to other people. If this is a person you're tempted to become embittered about, be able to bless and speak well of them. Not in a lying, syrupy, sweet, fake kind of way, but in a genuine way. Secondly, we should rejoice with those who rejoice Weep with those who weep. It's about having true empathy for somebody. 
It's the very opposite of the threat to unity that we looked at in James chapter 3, where there's selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. When there's weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with one those who rejoice, we're, we're putting ourselves in other people's shoes. We're happy for them instead of jealous of them. And so this is going to put out bitterness from our lives when we can rejoice with others, empathize with other people. Thirdly, we can live in harmony, live at peace with all. Verse 16 and verse 18 put these two peaceful and harmony commands together. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty. And then verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There are some people who just won't be at peace with you. But don't make it because you're not being peaceable. Make it their choice that you've done everything within your power to be at peace with them. But at some point, there are some times where God calls us just to be at peace with our conscience that we've done everything that we can. And we pray that God would then, in the future, at some time, cause them to want to be at peace with you. But you can't control that. You can't make that happen as much as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you. Fourthly, you need to associate with the lowly. What does that mean? Verse 16 says, live in harmony with others, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Humility. I think that we forget that we've been in your offender's shoes more than once. We've had times where we've had to ask somebody else's forgiveness because we've hurt them. We've been on the dishing out uh, side of things and we need to humble ourselves in that knowledge. Fifthly, we, sh- we should do what is honorable. I like the context of that. In verse 17, it says, give thought to do what is honorable. And sometimes this is lost in translation, that, that this give thought is to be mindful, to be thoughtful, to be prepared. There are firemen just down the road from us right now that are giving thought and are prepared to rush into a fire and to save somebody's life. They have boots ready. They have jackets ready. They have their car, the, the, the doors of their fire truck are open right now, ready to rush out into the battle, into the blaze. Are you giving thought to? Are you preparing ahead of time? Don't go into these relationships where you're tempted to be bitter without being prepared ahead of time. Um, You will react instead of act. You will respond in ways that are from a hurt heart rather than one that is ready to show mercy. We need to train our hearts to be ready to respond. And then leave it to the wrath of God in verse 19. We're told, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You know, I don't have all the facts in any given situation. I don't know God's game plan, exactly what he's bringing that person through that may be one step in his road to a huge breakthrough in his life that God is doing. And along the road here, he's hurt me in some way, and I want to then come back at him, and I want to... I want to take uh, vengeance on him. Rather, I need to leave it over to God. When we think I can teach him a lesson or they can't get away with this 
What we're saying is, I'm wise enough, and I have enough of the facts here to make a better decision than God does. It's never going to happen. You're never in a better position than God to execute judgment. Seven, feed him. Give him something to drink. This is just so counterintuitive. Verse 20 says, if you're to the contrary, if your hung, enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Wow. They do bad to you. They hurt you. And you notice they have a need. You go and meet that need. You care for somebody else. You care for the person that hurt you. That is powerful when that happens. And let me tell you, it's impossible in your own strength. It doesn't happen by you doing it on your own. This is where we need God's help and his assistance. And in doing so, what does this mean that you're heaping coals on his head? I've looked at a lot of commentaries on this, and my best belief on this is that when you look through the Old Testament, this coals or fire coming down on somebody's head, it's always a bad thing. It's always talking about the wrath of God being poured out. And yet, it's in the context here of you're doing a good thing for somebody. You're giving them food. You're giving them water. How could that be and end up becoming a bad thing? Well, I believe that your good in the face of their evil is going to bring shame on them to the point where they may repent of what they're doing. They may say, I can't believe this. I'm doing nothing but this to them, and they're being good to me, and they may stop. But if they don't stop, what they're doing is accumulating for themselves more judgment, more wrath that God will pour out on them when he deems appropriate. You remember Romans 2, 4 to 5, where Paul says, Do you presume on the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Can your good that you are returning to your offender be a tool of God's kindness to lead them to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you don't repent, if you don't give in, if you don't confess, that wrath is being stored up. Well, if you look at this list of eight things, the eighth is overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome with evil. Don't give up. But you are commanded to win the battle. You're not commanded just to fight. You're not commanded to watch. You're not commanded to sit back. You're commanded to win, overcome. Overcome evil, how? With good. Well, just biting your lip isn't enough. You've heard the saying, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That may be a, a beginning, but it can't be the end. You've got to have some good to overcome that evil with. Or otherwise, you're going to be overcome. I like what Lou Priolo does in his little book on bitterness. He talks about this game plan for overcoming evil with good. So when somebody does an evil against you, you've prepared ahead of time with good that you can return. Now, he makes the point that these have to be certified, biblically good bullets that you return. But you're sending back to them good in response to their evil. And you need to escalate. 
when they do a greater evil against you, what do you do? Give up? No. You do a greater good right back at them. And this is going to heap coals on their heads, bring them hopefully to the point of repentance. And if not, you're still in a place of obedience to what God's called you to do. So if we look in the scriptures, we see plenty of examples. Jonah held on to bitterness. You remember he's called to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go there in the first place, so he takes a boat and goes the other way. He gets swallowed by a big fish, spit up on the land, and God says, are you ready to go to Nineveh? He says, okay, I'll go, but I'm not going to like it. And we know that he didn't like it because after he gives this message, turn to God, repent, and they actually believe the message, he's still having a pity party. He's still angry. He's still bitter that God gave them repentance. So in his pity party, sitting on the side of, sitting out, uh, he has grow up beside him a vine with a shade that gives him rest, and he's so thankful. But God sends a worm to eat that vine, and it falls down, and now he has no shade. There he is. He's complaining against God again. He becomes embittered all over again. How often in our lives do we get embittered by other people, embittered against God because things don't turn out the way that we want them to? And God shows us some grace and gives us some shade, and we immediately, when it's taken away, be angry at God. But David, he overcame evil with good. When Saul was after him to take his life, chased him down on numerous occasions, once into a cave where he had perfect opportunity because Saul had no idea he was there. David showed mercy. David showed good. And he overcame that evil with good. And, and Saul recognized it. Saul said in 1 Samuel 24 to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Saul understood that. Now, it wasn't a lasting change in his life, but he came to acknowledge what David did. So how do we approach the bitterness in our lives? You need to understand how it's born. You need to look at how it grows, starve it out. You need to know how it dies so that you can kill it and battle and fight against it. Be active. Don't be passive. Go for it. Go after it. But God's grace is the key. The grace that he has showered on you, be ready to show to others. The forgiveness that he's granted you, be willing to grant to others. In light of God's mercy, be transformed and not conformed. So this morning, I was thinking about bitterness in my life and areas that I'm tempted to be bitter on. And I went to... Uh, notebook on my shelf. It's about a two-inch-plus binder of notes and proceedings from a church discipline case that I was involved in in my church before coming here. The church that I, I grew up in, I pastored at for five years, and at that church there was a huge division that took place, and I was called upon to moderate some of the the, the meetings that were there. And in the process, uh, you know, I had people who knew me since I was in the nursery in my face and, and pointing their finger at me and 
and yelling at me and accusing me of all sorts of things. And, and, and as, I, as I just picked up that notebook and, and looked through different emails, record of session meeting minutes and things that were said, charges that were brought, I just started to have this lump in my throat like, oh, I'm, I'm tempted to be bitter about this. And I thought, as I looked at the first page, it said um, from December 31st, 2001 was the first entry. I thought, December 31st, 2017 is going to be the last day that I have that on my shelves. I put it in the garbage and said, I don't need this anymore. I haven't looked at it in years. And I thought that God had given me a freedom from bitterness and resentment in my heart but I needed to take it to the next step and just get rid of it. What is it in your life right now that you're tempted to go back to, to maybe think about, to be bitter about? What relationship is not the way it should be that that maybe you have to take the step and go have a conversation with them and grant forgiveness or ask for forgiveness? Don't let bitterness continue to grow. It won't go away on its own. You have to make that choice. You have to be active in it. Let's pray. Father, it's hard when we face bitterness in our own hearts, Lord. It's so easy for us to see it in other people and to condemn it in their lives and people who are much worse than we are. But Lord, uh, would you convince us that the log is really in our own eye, that we need to actively fight against the bitterness that we're so tempted to grasp hold of. We confess we like it, Lord. We take some sick pleasure in being the martyr. And Lord, we, we confess that that's, that's evil. Lord, deliver us from our broken approaches to fixing the problems in our lives and let us see your great and marvelous grace. Let us be fueled by your mercy for us as we seek to show mercy and compassion to others, to practice forgiveness that you've called us to. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.